If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 18 this morning, and the text is printed in the bulletin on the next page for you as well. Let me pray before we read the Scripture. Father, we do pray for your help as we come to your Word to hear it read and hear it expounded. We pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to make us uh, able to receive it and to understand more about who you are and how you've revealed yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this is the event that kicks off what the rest in uh, of chapter five. One one commentator calls it Jesus' deepest sermon in the Gospel of John. It's Jesus preaching uh, about his own divine authority. And that's saying a lot because the Gospel of John is pretty deep. And there's a lot of teachings of Christ that are uh, pretty profound. So, But we'll look at that over the next few weeks. But now for the event. Someone who is familiar with John's Gospel <clears throat> might notice several parallels here with a similar event that takes place in John chapter 9 with the healing of a blind man. There are a lot of parallels. I see at least 10 parallels uh, between these two stories. We're not going to talk about all of them, but um, as you compare and contrast them, which I think is kind of the point, the reason why they're both included in John's gospel is so that we can compare and contrast them you can't help but see that the blind man who's healed later in chapter 9, it's recorded in chapter 9, he responds well to Jesus, to Jesus' grace, to his healing. He responds well. The, the invalid that's healed in our passage in chapter 5 responds poorly. 
he does not respond well. So Jesus graciously blesses all kinds of people, and not all of them respond well to who he is and what he does for them. Uh, got another example of the same kind of thing. I think in, in uh, Luke 17, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing uh, between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So not all people respond well to Jesus and his work in their lives. The nine others were apparently not filled with personal gratitude to Jesus. Whatever their response was, it's not recorded, but we know what it wasn't. It wasn't personal gratitude to Jesus, which is astonishing considering how life-changing his grace was to them. Uh, unfortunately, as, uh, as pitiable as this invalid at the pool of Bethesda in our passage may be, he, he really demonstrates no interest in Jesus either. Uh, he has no internal soul renewal to accompany the renewal and the restoration of his body. He really doesn't even desire to be made well in the most important ways. So apparently that can happen even when Jesus himself is the one who heals you of a serious malady. Does that level of work in your life? Apparently you can just have no personal relational response to him. You can be very well cared for by God yet fail to see him for how good he is and fail to give him the praise that he deserves and the thanks for what he's done. Nevertheless, it's not just to point out what's wrong with us, Nevertheless, Jesus shows us that he will continue to bless people anyway, and ultimately it will result in his glorification. So uh, let's take a little closer look at the story. It takes uh, place during a feast in Jerusalem and on the Sabbath. A lot of the feasts were associated with uh, the Sabbath. Um, All kinds of people in the world make religious pilgrimage to holy sites and observe holy days in their calendars. Uh, This was one of the regular times. We're not sure exactly which uh, feast it was in the Jewish festival calendar, but it was one of the regular times it was appointed by God or instituted by God for his people to go to Jerusalem and go to the temple for for corporate worship. And you get the sense that um, as as you read through the Gospels and these people are present at these uh, feasts, you do get the sense that they view it as an obligation. They view going up to Jerusalem, to the temple, to a feast, as as mainly just an obligation, something tedious that they've got to do, rather than, as it was intended, to be a festival of celebration and thanksgiving. What's a feast if, if not supposed to be characterized by joy and fun, right? Just as they viewed the Sabbath as being full of inconvenient requirements, Uh, rather than as it was intended, a time of refreshment in the presence of God and and with his people. This God is a God of all delight. 
He commands our joy. He wants us to rest. He wants us to celebrate. He provides for us, and he invites us to enter into true rest together with him. But, um, but people like us are able to warp anything into a dutiful drudgery. And that is the sense that you get throughout the Gospels. And, uh, and so John records Jesus going up to Jerusalem to these feasts several times. Uh, a lot of times in, in John's Gospel, the setting is one of these feasts. And part of the reason for that is that Jesus is the one who renews our participation in such things. He brings us festival joy again, right? He transforms the nature of these feasts and brings us joy along with his restoration. So on the north side of the temple complex is uh, what's known as the Sheep Gate, where they bring in the sacrificial animals. Uh, They bring them into the temple, and nearby there, there's this pool called Bethesda, which means uh, house of mercy, probably, or house of grace. And many disabled people would congregate there, apparently because there was some sort of tradition or some sort of uh, belief um, that when the waters stirred, maybe when the waters bubbled, when when new water came into the pool, somehow, I'm not sure how the the pool was fed, but uh, the the first one to get in the water would be healed. In fact, uh, some manuscripts and maybe some of the Bibles that you have in front of you uh, include this in the text, this, uh, this kind of tradition of an angel going down into the water and stirring it up and so that the first person who would enter the water after that happened uh, would be healed. Um, that, that story isn't in the best manuscripts. It's not in the best and earliest manuscripts, so it's probably not original to the story, but it's, it's an addition meant to explain the beliefs of the people, why, they, why the invalids all congregated around the pool. And, uh, but the fact is that there was some sort of tradition like this, which allows us to understand why they were there. We're not told exactly the nature of this man's disability. It said that he's an invalid, which basically is equivalent of saying he's, he's disabled. Um, but there was this one man, he'd been there, disabled with some, with some sort of disability for 38 years. 38 years is longer than the average life expectancy back then. People were expected to live 30 to 35 years. This is kind of, you know, before modern medicine, long before modern medicine and the tumultuous nature of society. Um, 38 years was a lifetime of suffering. That's what we should think. This is a whole lifetime of suffering. And Jesus sees this man and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Jesus is not asking the question because he's really curious and he doesn't know. He doesn't know the answer to that question, right? It's the same kind of question that he asked Adam in the garden when, uh, when he asked him, where are you? After, he, after Adam sinned and he and his wife were hiding in the, in the trees and in the bushes, where are you? He's God. He knows the answer to these questions Uh, Jesus knows what people are thinking. John's already pointed that out in his gospel earlier in chapter 1 with Jesus' interaction with Nathanael. And several times throughout the gospel, Jesus knows the thoughts and the the hearts of the people around him. In fact, it says right before he asks the question that Jesus knew that the man had already been there for a long time, which is a reference actually to his divine knowledge. He knows something about this person that he wasn't told. He didn't get it from an interaction with this person. Uh, So... He's got divine knowledge. Why is he asking the question then? Do you want to be healed? 
Well, he asks because he's interested in engaging the man personally, because personal relationship is important to him, and conversation is part of that. And he also asks to expose something that's going on inside this man that he knows is there, and actually for our benefit, that it would be recorded in the scriptures for our benefit. The obvious answer to this this question, do you want to be healed? Everybody knows the answer to that question. Yes, sir, please help me. 38 years, a lifetime of suffering. Yes, that's the answer. Everyone knows that's how this fellow is going to answer the question, but he doesn't. He doesn't. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water's stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. You feel pity for that guy, right? You feel pity for him. And I bet pity for him was so much the response of your heart when you heard that, that you didn't realize he didn't answer Jesus' question. He didn't answer. Um, Maybe this will seem harsh to you, um, but it's not meant to be harsh. Hear me out. This man lives off the pity of others, and he's done so for a lifetime. He lives off of the pity of other people, and in order to, to gain their pity, he must portray himself as a victim of life, a victim of his circumstances, a victim of the neglect of other people. He's helpless, and he's, he's got he's to play that card to get pity from others. That's what he's trying to do with Jesus. He had learned to capitalize on his disability. I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean to him uh, or about him. I, this, this is just a reality of our humanity. He had to learn to capitalize on his disability to survive. Right? Or at least he was He believed that. He had learned to capitalize on his disability, and it had become his identity. That's who he is. He's the invalid. He's the guy lying there that people have pity on or that people try to avoid so they're not sucked into the pity thing. That's his identity. That's who he is. He's come to depend upon his identity as an invalid, as a broken man, for his survival. And so his brokenness um, at that point, when, when he adopts that as his identity, it, it, it goes deeper than his muscles and his bones. His brokenness goes all the way down into his soul. Instead of simply saying enthusiastically, which kind of thing we, we see recorded lots of times in the Gospels that's not recorded here, instead of simply saying, yes, please help me, yes, He attempts to give an explanation or maybe an excuse for why he needs help. And he he ends up blaming the lack of other people's compassion for his plight. That is technically what he's doing, is blaming the lack of other people's compassion for for the the circumstances that he finds himself in. You know that thing, that, that, that kind of thing goes on inside of us all. We can play the victim We can pity ourselves. We can seek to evoke the pity of other people. And he is a pitiable person. But playing that card, we play that card. We play the victim card in order to justify ourselves, in order to preserve our identity or to get what we want or what we think we need, in order to get sympathy from other people. 
instead of just asking for help when we need it, instead of just asking for help, we complain about others to get pity. Instead of admitting our weakness or our need or our fault sometimes, instead of admitting those things, we blame our circumstances or we blame other people. And we'll even call God's spectacularly good care for us into question when we suffer. So all this man can do is complain that nobody cares for him. All he can do is complain about the neglect of others or their lack of compassion. And that kind of thing will cause many to pity him. It causes us to pity him, which is probably the, the deliberate aim of his words to generate pity. But it really ends up being ultimately a, a, a statement of his view of reality. You know what's wrong with this world? You know what's wrong with my life? Nobody takes care of me. People trample all over me. People stampede me and take what I deserve, what I need. That's what's wrong with this world. When, and when people complain about life like that, somewhere behind it all, you know they're actually ultimately complaining about God. Like Israel did in the wilderness, complaining about Moses' leadership. But ultimately, they were complaining about God for their circumstances. And this complaining attitude is what it is. Maybe it seems harsh to you, but, but this is what it is. You can see it especially in comparison with uh, John 9, the blind man, who doesn't have the same kind of attitude at all. This complaining attitude is the man's real disability. It's the real problem. His soul sickness is the real problem. It's the thing about him which actually is truly most pitiable. He is enslaved, if we can see it, he is enslaved to his complaint about life and is now quite a one-dimensional person as a human being, as we will see shortly. Um, and so Jesus, he engages with him graciously with this question, and he stirs up this stuff. And Jesus keeps it brief. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And just almost like as a side comment, um, seeing how the rest of this story plays out through the rest of chapter 5, knowing that Jesus knows what he's doing, uh, we get the idea that Jesus is actually setting up the conflict that we're going to see between himself and the Jews as an opportunity for his teaching about himself. He's not just healing this man, which is marvelous in itself. He's creating a scenario in which this man will be challenged and where this man, uh, where his faith if he has any, will be tested. Jesus is setting up this scenario and where Jesus himself will enter into deeper conflict with the religious leaders. Of course, it's a perfect picture of the real ramifications of becoming a Christian. If Jesus comes into your life with salvation, it places you at odds with the world. You are set up for real conflict with the world, and that's because the world ultimately is in real conflict with Jesus. So, and side note there, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This is fantastic. It's easy almost to pass over it in terms of what this story is, um, is really getting at and really talking about. This is fantastic. Jesus walks through this world with creative, miraculous power like an artist who has complete mastery over his own canvas. 
because he's God. He could do anything like this. He is so good to this man to transform what has been a lifetime of suffering, 38 years. He's so good to this man. And like nine out of ten lepers from Luke 17, he has no response to Jesus at all. None at all. Conspicuously absent is any celebration, any delight, any praise, any falling down at Jesus' feet and worshiping him, any thanksgiving at all, any attempt to connect further with Jesus personally for what he's done for him. It's just not in there because it didn't happen, right? It's conspicuously absent. In fact, we could imagine, depending on the severity of this man's identification with his disability, how much that's a factor uh, for him, that he's, he's unable to even process what just happened to him. Um, or maybe he's even resentful that the way of life to which he had grown accustomed has just been radically changed, taken away from him. What am I going to do now? <laughs> Whatever the case, uh, he has no problem apparently, continuing to shift blame to others, even to the point of throwing the man who had healed him under the bus. Uh, When it appears that he himself is going to get in trouble with the authorities because that day was the Sabbath. This is kind of the ominous, dun-dun-dun, right? Scene for conflict here. Um, Because the, the very religious Jews in Jerusalem had the attitude they did about the Sabbath uh, this guy was going to, he was about to get into big trouble with them. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's a Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Never mind, totally ignore the miraculous healing for which we should all give thanks. You're breaking our rules. What are you doing? But it isn't clear um, from the text, anyway, whether he's breaking biblical commandments, really, or just the the sort of technical, highly specific, very particular rabbinical teachings of the time, what are ultimately human traditions um, that the Jews held on par with God's own word. Probably that. Probably that's what um, he's in trouble for. But the real problem, as, as a reader of this, The real problem of the scenario is clear. You've got a whole bunch of people who are utterly blind to grace. They're just blind to it. They're more concerned with legal, religious obligations and observations than to celebrate and praise and thank the God who had healed this man from a lifetime of suffering. Every single one of them is blind to that. And the man who had been healed confirmed his uh, continuing soul sickness. It's on display when rather than uh, redirecting their attention to the miracle or praising his healer like the blind man does in John 9 when he's healed and brought before the authorities and is excommunicated. Um, Out of fear, this guy blames the very one who had healed him. He blames him. Blame shift. Preferring that Jesus would get in trouble rather than he himself. He senses the trouble that's coming, and he wants Jesus to get in trouble instead of him. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It wasn't me, it was this guy over here. That's familiar. 
have pity on me, have pity on me. I'm in trouble here because of someone else. Same kind of thing that he was doing earlier. So, now, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was who had healed him, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So apparently this man has made a clean getaway, right? He's no longer in trouble. He's no longer being interviewed or interrogated by the Jews. He's made a clean getaway. He's out. He's free when Jesus finds him. He didn't find Jesus. He didn't go looking for him. Jesus found him and says, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I don't think we should understand Jesus to be saying, you were disabled for 38 years because of your sin. So knock it off or I'll make you an invalid again or worse. Right? That's, not, that's not what he's saying. Again, uh, in parallel with John 9, um, John, it gives us some insight where Jesus explicitly says sin was not the cause of this man's sickness. It's not necessarily the cause of our illness or our suffering. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. We don't know. Jesus doesn't say that here. But instead, uh, I think Jesus is teaching this man that the consequences for sin are far worse than a lifetime of disability. The real consequences for sin are really far worse than a lifetime of suffering with a disability. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's true? Um, Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. Worse than a lifetime of suffering with a disability is a lifetime of being at enmity with God, our creator, the one in whose image we were made for a relationship with him, a relationship of love and joy. So it's far worse than a lifetime of disability to be at odds with this God, to be in enmity with him, to be distant from him. And far worse than that, a fixed eternity of alienation from God, unable to live in his love, having been the recipient of his goodness, yet unable to respond well to him. That's a picture of hell. Being the recipient of God's goodness, but you, you can't personally, relationally respond to him. You can't celebrate. You can't give him praise and thanks. This guy is in hell. This invalid is in a living hell because he cannot respond to the one who's healed him, who's been so good to him. He cannot respond well to God. And that's the definition of hell. This, uh, this warning apparently has had no impact on him. He doesn't express thanks. He doesn't even desire to spend more time with Jesus or get to know him. doesn't even want to know his name. And John Calvin said, we, we make an improper use of the gifts of God if we're not excited to gratitude. So this man, he had made a clean getaway from the Jewish authorities. He had no reason to go back and talk to them again. But he headed straight back to them to report Jesus' name to them once Jesus revealed it to him. He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So he's a snitch. He's a tattletale. He's a betrayer, ultimately, of the one who had given him everything. He's a betrayer. He found some kind of satisfaction in living a life of blaming and complaining, even if that was against someone as gracious as Jesus, against someone as gracious as God himself, 
even if that meant bringing great suffering upon Jesus, which if this guy wasn't just a total idiot, he knew that by reporting Jesus' name to these authorities, Jesus was going to be in trouble. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, my father's working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I just want to say a couple um, somewhat brief things here and finish up soon. First is that next week we'll see how this event evolves into Jesus' sermon. It's kind of the hint of it here about his divine authority. We'll talk more about what that means, that he's claiming to be God here. Just know that is what's happening here. He is claiming to be God as he gives a defense for why he was doing such things on the Sabbath. Here, he, he does it a little differently in other places where the Jews say, you violated the Sabbath, and he gives them the reason that you're supposed to do good works on the Sabbath. You're supposed to be merciful to people who are suffering on the Sabbath. That's perfectly in line with, with what God expects from the Sabbath. He does that in other places. Here, instead, he says, I'm God. The Sabbath is mine. My father's been working until now, and I am working. The Jews had always understood that there, there must be a sense in which on the Sabbath, as it says in our Old Testament reading that Sarah read earlier, you know, God rested from all his works that he had done in creation, right? The seventh day is a thing. The Sabbath is a thing because God rested from his works in creation. So there's a sense in which he's resting, but the Jews knew there's also this sense in which he's not resting or else the world would blink out of existence. <laughs> he is still working. He's, he's still managing creation. He's still um, doing good works of providence and, and uh, righteousness, exercising righteousness. He doesn't stop working on the Sabbath in one sense. Right? The Jews knew that. We have documents that say that they knew that. They, they understood that. They figured that out. But Jesus appeals to that reality and basically says, yes, I've been doing these things on the Sabbath, and because you acknowledge that my Father, God, has been working and has the right, and it is right for him to do such things, you also should acknowledge that it is right for me to do such things. So it's a clear claim of divinity that Christ is making for himself. As the other gospel writers record, Jesus here is claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, um, the one who instituted the Sabbath, who declares its purpose, who continues his beautiful works of providence and mercy in the world that he's created. And the Jews understand what he's saying. Uh, they understand it quite well, which is explicitly the purpose that's recorded for why they're trying to kill him. Because he made himself equal with God. But again, we'll talk more about that next week. What I want to finish with is a bit of application of the gospel as we see it here. Maybe you don't see the gospel here. Uh, the story doesn't really have a happy ending, right? It doesn't have a great ending. It's pretty troubling, actually. The man who was healed, um, you just get the sense, again, especially when you compare him with John 9, the blind man who's healed there, you get the sense that he's just the shade of a human being. He's unable to be more than his grumblings in this life. He's unable to rise in praise and thanksgiving to the one who healed him. He prefers that Jesus would suffer as a lawbreaker instead of himself. 
And that reveals something about this man, and it reveals something about people like all of us, but it reveals more about Jesus, because Jesus also preferred to suffer as a lawbreaker instead of us. He's willing to do that for people who don't give him the praise that he deserves. While we were still enemies, he came and did this. He gave his life for us. He's willing to to do this for people who enjoy an abundance, an overabundance, a superabundance of his gifts and his grace without the proper gratitude, most of the time without an inkling of gratitude. He's willing to suffer as a lawbreaker instead of us. People who have been recipients of his tremendous goodness who cannot even respond to him. For people who make him a scapegoat and betray him for our own comfort. It's because Jesus is who he is. He moved toward us in grace. When none of us responded appropriately, he continued in grace. In this story, he went into the temple by the sheep gate. He went in by the sheep gate, which is a point worth mentioning, apparently, for John. It's a symbol of the fact that he goes into God's presence on our behalf as a sacrifice for the slaughter, the Lamb of God, to take away our sin. He suffered as a lawbreaker instead of us. He did that at the cross as he died for us. We would shift our blame over onto him thinking our lives are miserable, we're in this fix that we are, and it's his fault. It's God's fault. We would shift the blame over onto him, and he actually is willing to receive that. It's not true. But he's willing to receive the blame shift in order to forgive us and to renew us from the inside out, to heal what's really wrong with us, our soul sickness. He came to restore sight to the blind and make the lame walk again and to cleanse lepers and to make the deaf hear and to raise the dead to life and to preach good news to the poor. And what you've got to see is that this is descriptive of his relationship with you, not just people who are physically disabled. This is descriptive of the way that he is with people like you and me. You've got the same sickness inside of you that the disabled man did. Jesus saw what was in that guy and came into his life in grace anyway. A grace that would ultimately be willing to suffer for the relationship. And the tragic thing is that for this man, it apparently had no effect on his soul. And it will only be a work of God's mercy that you don't turn out like him. You could enter into a rich, personal relationship with Jesus simply by actually responding to his grace in your life. Just by being honest, saying, yeah, I need help. <laughs> I need healing. I need forgiveness. I need mercy and grace. The free acceptance of God that comes through you alone. I need that. I want that. Just actually respond to his grace. Receive his forgiveness. Receive the reconciliation that he offers in the gospel with praise and thanksgiving. It's not going to be perfect praise and thanksgiving. It's not going to be the perfect response, but, but some response to who he is and what he's done for you. You could enter into a rich relationship with him. You could have all your, your preconceptions about God and religion entirely overthrown as you discover the everlasting festival joy of truly knowing God through Jesus Christ. 
or you could ignore him and sign up for a bleak existence, unable to respond to the true source of all life and goodness and joy. So what's it going to be? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do pray for your help. What we're doing right now as we pray to you for your help is saying that we can't generate the right kind of response in our own hearts. We can't change our own hearts. If we're going to have a response that is unlike this disabled fellow, a response that, um, that is one of faith and gratitude to who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel, that's going to have to be a work of your spirit. Your spirit is the one who renews our hearts and gives us new hearts and makes us able to respond appropriately though not perfectly, to Jesus and his sacrifice for us. We, we pray that you would help us to respond well to you. We pray that you would not leave us in our soul sickness, but that you would make us truly well in a relationship with you as a gift of your grace. We're at your mercy for that. We pray that it would be true. And we pray that it would be true for your name's sake, for your glory, for who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.